Good morning. Uh, good to see you all, um, uh, particularly those of you who are guests with us. A special welcome uh, to you. My name is Kondo. I get to serve as one of the pastors here at Mission Point, and it is no small deal that you chose to come and spend some of your morning here with us today. Um, we are um, at the tail end of a series that, again, creatively we've called Psalms. And uh, in this series, we've been looking at some of the more well-known Psalms and just really trying to get a sense of what the Lord would want to teach us today um, from these ancient songs that were penned uh, thousands of years ago. Um, and so this morning, we're going to continue that. And uh, next week, we wrap this uh, series together. Um, now, you know... This has been a tough psalm, the one we're going to look at this morning. The Lord has been using it to mess with me, to mess with uh, my life uh, a little bit, and um, all for the purpose of freeing me, and all for the purpose of inviting me deeper um, into life, to more joy. And I'm confident that through this psalm, the Lord wants to do the same with many of you, to invite you deeper, to invite you into more life, to invite you into more of his joy, if you are willing to receive it. Now, let me just say by way of warning that this is a little bit more of a teachy psalm, if you will, but I think for us to get a sense of uh, what this text means, we've got to understand um, some of what it is saying. And um, we're going to get right to work. Uh, If you have a copy of the scripture, meet me in um, Psalm chapter 32. Um, Psalm 32. We're going to be um, in this really powerful chapter that deals with the issue of dealing with our sin. Dealing with our sin. And here's the gist of what's happening in Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, what David is communicating is this idea that, listen, you are all going to sin. You are all going to make a moral mess in your life. It's not an issue of if. It's really a question of when. So here's the key consideration. How will you respond when you sin. Not if you sin, but when you do. And what David does in this psalm is he uses his own life to tell us that there are really two ways that you can respond. And David knows because he responded in both of those ways. When you mess up, and you will mess up, there are two ways that you can respond. Uh, The first option will lead you to death. Door number one will always lead towards death. And door number two will lead towards life, will lead towards delight. And what Psalm 2 is saying is, take your pick. But please pick the door of life. So, um, Psalm 32 um, We're going to start reading at verse 1. The the verses will be up on the screen. If you need a copy of the scriptures, Richie is coming up the aisles. You can just slip your arm up. Let him know uh, that you need one. He'll get one into your hands. And if you don't own a copy, please, please keep this as our gift to you. But Psalm chapter 32, uh, starting at verse 1. And we're going to look at the first six verses of this psalm. And here's what it says. Uh, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then... I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely, the rising of the mighty waters will not reach 
them. We are all going to mess up. The question is, when you mess up, how will you respond? Um, to get a better sense of, of this psalm, we want to take a journey back uh, to the darkest season in David's life. In fact, this psalm is penned at the tail end of the darkest days of David's life. And so we want to kind of go back and see what it is that stirred him to write these powerful words. Um, and this season is described for your reference in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Um, and the story goes something like this. Uh, one night, David, the king of Israel, He's hanging out on his private bedroom balcony at the palace, just enjoying the view. Nothing wrong with that particular place. In fact, it's a pretty cool place uh, that he was hanging out at that time. The problem was he wasn't supposed to be there. It was the timing of him being in that particular place because it was springtime. Springtime. Everybody knows springtime in that day and age was the era in which the kings would take their armies off to battle. But for some reason or another, David wasn't feeling it. So he decided to stay home and send his army without him. By the way, sometimes it's amazing how the messes in our lives start simply because we may have been in the right place, but at the wrong time. As was the case with David. So he's hanging out on his balcony and he's enjoying his view. Um, as he's staring out, he sees a stunning woman named Bathsheba. And she be bathing in her backyard. When he sees her, his man fires are stirred pretty badly and he's convinced must have her. My life isn't complete without her. And so he does a little research, a little investigation, and he discovers that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, is one of his soldiers who's off to war doing battle. So to him seems like a perfect opportunity. And so he reaches out and has her brought to his palace. He's the king. It's kind of hard to resist a royal edict like this. And so she shows up. By the way, I've read this story a number of times, and maybe some of you have as well. And I've always wondered, like, why is this shady exhibitionist woman taking a bath in her backyard? Like, she doesn't know that the king's private balcony is up there. She knows where the palace is. She knows where the king tends to hang out every now and then. And then I thought about some of my own kind of awkward moments. But don't worry, I won't make this too awkward for you. But uh, maybe it's just me. Maybe you've experienced this as well. But there have been occasions. I'm not saying, you know, extreme a number of occasions. But there have been occasions when I've been at my house chilling extremely comfortably. <laughs> only to be interrupted by one of those like, oops. I could have sworn I was home alone. I'm going to go now, you know. I yell, why are you not in school? I have, I stayed home because I was feeling sick and dad, now I feel much, much sicker. You know, um, but you've had those kind of strange <laughs> moments and um, I wonder if that's not what was happening with Bathsheba. It's springtime. My husband Uriah is off fighting at war and if my husband is off fighting at war, then surely his fierce leader, the king, is leading him into battle. So if there's any Time in the year when I can enjoy a little comfort, an extra cush or two. It's now. I wonder if she expected David to be gone, but David's choice to stay home sparked a spiraling effect of decisions that eventually led to him sleeping with this woman, committing adultery with Bathsheba, sleeping with a man's wife while the man was fighting his battle on the field. But Sheba ends up getting pregnant. She sends words to David, and David immediately panics. Because what he thought was a springtime fling has now become a lifetime thing, and the evidence of what he's done is growing inside this woman. 
He's a brilliant guy and he knows I can't have this. And so he puts into place operation cover up. Three phase operation. Brilliant guy. Phase one um, is the frame phase. David reasons in his mind, if I can somehow get um, her husband Uriah to come from war and spend a weekend at home and sleep with his wife, then no Maury, no one will ever know, paternity test, that I am the father of this kid. And so he gives Uriah this major weekend hall pass from the battlefield. And Uriah comes home, but this man is principled. He refuses to go home to his wife. He says, if my brothers in arms are battling for their lives, there's no way I'm going to choose to go Netflix and chill with my wife at home while these guys rough it. And so he sleeps with the servants at the king's gates. David finds out phase one was a fail, so he moves to phase two. Phase two is the intoxication phase. And he reasons in his mind, okay, I'm going to invite this guy over for dinner and I'm going to get him blitzed. And then his inhibitions will lower. He's going to go home, sleep with his wife, and the whole thing will be covered over. And he does that. He invites him over, you know, gets Uriah drunk. But still Uriah, a man of principle, refuses to go home. And he goes and sleeps the gate with the servants. And so finally, phase three is the elimination phase. David realizes his plan is not working. And so in a desperate and a deplorable move, uh, David sends Uriah back to war and orders his army to retreat from him, leaving him alone on the front lines. And it's in that position that Uriah is eliminated. David commits adultery, and in order to cover up his adultery, he commits murder. And when he gets word that Uriah is dead, he celebrates by bringing Bathsheba into his palace as one of his many wives. A series of choices that would spark the darkest season of David's life. And at the end of 2 Samuel 11, there is this absolutely chilling declaration by God. I saw everything you did and I'm furious. God is mad with what David chooses to do. Psalm 32 is David telling us the truth about that season of his life. He's giving us an all-access pass into what it was really like during those days. And he tells us a few things that are going to be very key for us to get a hold of, if we're going to get a hold of what I believe the Lord wants to tell us this morning. And here are the things David says about that season of Life, Even in Psalm 32, the first thing he says to us is, I, I chose to sin. I chose to sin. In describing the mess that he made, in describing what happened with Bathsheba and what happened with Uriah, David doesn't mince words, doesn't make excuses. He calls his choice sin. And that's going to be huge for some of our freedom here this morning. He calls it sin. He doesn't call it a mistake. He doesn't call it a struggle. He doesn't call it an issue. He doesn't say, oh, well, nobody is perfect. He calls his choice sin. In fact, he doesn't just call it sin. David goes so far as to use three different terms to describe, almost to give the full anatomy of his sin. And I think these terms are actually going to prove helpful in our own lives and in our own understanding. I chose to sin, and he uses three different words. The first word is a word that's translated transgression in the NIV. Uh, look at Psalm 32 verse 5. The second sentence in verse 5 says, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. He calls it transgression. Um, a transgression is a word that means to deviate from a standard. To deviate from a standard or to violate, if you will, a standard. It's a great word. Uh, because David is assuming that there is a standard.
standard above him that he is subject to and he's obligated to keep. And when he says, I chose to sin, he's saying, I deviated from that standard. This is so key, especially in our culture. Because David would never have bought in to anything remotely resembling, well, you know, what's wrong for you is wrong for you. What's right for me is right for me. What feels good to you is good. What for he said, absolutely not. There is a standard that is above all of us. And we are subject to it. And we're obligated to keep this standard. And he says, I transgressed. I deviated from this standard when I slept with Bathsheba. And I murdered her husband. And what David would say to us, by the way, is that every single time you sin, you deviate from a standard that is above you, that you are subject to and therefore obligated to keep. There's often a lot of talk about sinning against myself or, or breaking my own rules. But what David says, no, when I'm talking about sin, I'm not talking about I broke my New Year's resolutions. I'm not saying I disappointed my parents. He's saying I violated, I deviated from a standard that is above me and above all of us. But then he uses a second term that helps round out the first term. And it's translated sin in our Bibles, in the New International Version at least. He says, sin, I chose to sin, and he uses the word that we often use, sin itself. Look at the first part of verse 5. He says, then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Uh, the idea of transgression is to deviate from a standard. The idea of sin is to defy a standard maker. David is a smart guy. He knows that if there is a standard, if there is a law above me, it didn't just make itself. Somebody had to have authored the standard. Somebody had to have authored the law. If there is a standard, then there is a standard maker. And by the way, if there is a standard that is above us that we're obligated to keep, then there's a standard maker. The standard maker must be above the standard that is above me. And when David says, I sinned, he's saying, I didn't just deviate from a standard. I violated and offended a standard maker. And what David is saying is my sin was personal. In fact, he would say to us, every sin is personal. It is poking the standard maker in the chest and saying, I'm not going to do what you have said to do. I sinned. I offended the person of God himself. This is, by the way, why it is so foolish to try and determine what sins are big deals and what sins are not big deals. What? A mentor used to say, you know, to me, there can't possibly be any such thing as a small sin because there isn't such a thing as a small God to sin against. And David understands in this second word that every sin is a personal offense against God. And then he gives a third term to describe his choice to sin and he uses the word iniquity. Not a word we use commonly in our daily conversation. But look at the first part of Psalm 32 verse 5. Again, he says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. Transgression is to deviate from a standard. The idea of sin is to defy a personal standard Maker. And then here he uses the word iniquity, which means to deserve a legal sentence. To deserve or to carry a legal sentence. It's a word that communicates legal guilt. I've disregarded a law. I've defied the person who made the law. And therefore I deserve the sentence that comes with breaking the law. David is saying, I was guilty 
and I carried a sentence because of my adultery and the murder that I committed. Every sin earns a legal declaration of guilt. Every sin. This is so important, again, for us um, to see and to understand because of the culture in which I live. The culture in which you live. Biblical guilt, which is the word David is using here, it's a legal declaration. It's not an emotional experience. See, because oftentimes we'll say stuff, and I heard this growing up. We'll tell our kids stuff like this. Like if you go and you, you sleep around, you know, um, and then you party sinfully, you're going to feel so guilty. And then they do it one day, and they don't feel guilty. Then they think a number of things. You are lying, and they must somehow be exempt from whatever God says. But what David is saying is, no, 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 no. Guilt is not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's a fact. It doesn't matter whether you believe or you don't believe that you are carrying a sentence. You are still carrying the sentence. I don't have to feel like I have an unpaid ticket to have an unpaid ticket. David is saying, no, 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 no. When I chose to sin, I earned a legal sentence. Because of my sin. Every sin makes you legally guilty. And as we've talked about here, even in the recent weeks, the, the legal sentence for every sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Every sin I commit earns me a death sentence. Every sin. That's why, again, we cannot talk about, well, small sin, big sin, little sin. Every sin carries with it a death sentence. David is saying, I, I deviated from a standard. I, I, I defied the standard maker, and I deserved a death sentence. In fact, I was carrying a legal sentence of guilt. I chose to sin. I chose to sin. But... What he tells us in this chapter is my choice to sin wasn't actually what plunged me into the single darkest season of my life. No. My life took a turn towards death. Not so much when I chose to sin, but when I chose to cover up my sin. I had two choices. When I had messed up in how to respond to the moral mess I made. And I chose to cover it up. David would say in Psalm 32, I covered my sin. That was my first response. Look at verse 3 of this chapter. David says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. When I kept silent. Uh, the word he uses uh, that's translated to keep silent is a word that paints a picture of a farmer's plow. Which is a really interesting and a really helpful picture, actually. And the reason uh, this word to be silent it paints a picture of a plow is because a plow by nature digs into the ground. And what David is saying is my first response when I chose to sin was to be silent. My heart dug into the ground and I refused to address it. I refused to acknowledge it. I covered it up. I dug the heels of my heart in. In fact, the truth is for almost a year, David refused to acknowledge his sin to God or address his sin with anybody else. It was his little secret. Oh, I was committed to covering it up. It wasn't until God finally sent a man his way to confront him 
that David would eventually acknowledge it almost a year later. But for almost a year, he covered his sin. And the way David did this was by, again, he just refused to address it. He refused to admit it. I mean, if, if, if you were David, if, if I were David, I mean, we may have, you know, dug our heels in, but it might have looked different. I mean, the way we might choose to cover our sin is by faking it, by showing up to church and smiling and pretending our marriage is just on point, like there's nothing going on behind these veils, by faking it, by pretending, no, my eyes have been red for a year because I'm really tired. That's the only thing going on in my life. Or we might do it by just denying it. I mean, it's not technically a sin. Um, you know, it's not really that big a deal when you really think about it. Plus, it's not really hurting anyone. And also, I can stop at any time. Plus, it's not my fault. I mean, she was bathing in the backyard. What, what, am, I, what am I supposed to do? As a hot-blooded male, what am I supposed to do? Really, it's not my fault. We may cover it by denial. We may cover it by working. All right, I'm going to get so involved in the work of God, I'm going to serve in the church. Because if I serve in the church and if my church attendance, you know, peaks a little bit, then maybe what will happen is, you know, God will forget about it and the scales will, will balance. So I'm just going to cover it over by just not addressing it. I'm going to just immerse myself in working. And some of us cover it by exaggerating it. And I know that this is a way I can be prone. And exaggerating it, meaning I'm going to cover it by more sin. Like, listen, if I've messed up this badly, I might as well just stay here. And just kind of binge it out for a little bit, and then I'll deal with it later. Or, just ignore it. This is my personal favorite strategy. You know, just wait God out. Because, you know, if you wait long enough, and you don't talk to him and he doesn't talk to you, he'll just forget about it and the case will just magically be dismissed. And you just go back to being, you know, on good, solid speaking terms. Just wait it out. But for almost a year, David says, I covered my sin. I covered my sin. And I wonder if that's not where some of us have been. I wonder if that's maybe not where some of us are here this morning. We, we, we've made a mess and we're covering it over. We're faking it. We're, we're pretending. We're denying. We're just lying to people. And the first Samuel, second Samuel 11 says, no, God saw what you did. He knows what you did. And he's not pleased. I wonder if that's where some of us are this morning covering our sin. And maybe that's the pattern. When we mess up, we just work for God. We never address it. We just work for God. When we mess up, we just deny it. We justify it. We explain it away. And then we improve our behavior. But we never actually deal with it. That's covering over. I wonder for some of us, that's the pattern God doesn't want to break once and for all in us. The problem with covering your sin is it will start to kill you. And that's what David says about his own life. Look at verse 3. He says, when I kept silent, when I dug in my heels, when I covered it over, when I faked it, when I lied, when I denied it, when I justified it, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, God, was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. David is saying, when I covered my sin, I started to deteriorate. I rapidly disintegrated into a fraction of the man that I once was. And it wasn't my sin in and of itself that plunged me into the darkest season of my life. It was my silence. It was my secrecy. It was my stubborn insistence on digging in and not addressing it. That's what started 
to destroy my life. The phrases he uses are vivid and tragic. He says, my bones were wasting. My strength was sapping. It's just another way of saying, in every way you can think of, my life was deteriorating. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, psychologically, relationally, add whatever alley you want. David says, my life was sinking. I was wasting away. He he literally uses this this language that means I was growing old. In fact, the picture is I aged decades in the course of a year. My soul was graying because I insisted on covering my sin. I became physically weak. I couldn't do the same things I was physically able to do the year before. David is saying, I became a sickly man. Literally, I started having health issues. My immune system was shutting down. I started having health problems, which is a common biblical teaching, by the way, that there is a connection uh, oftentimes between sin and sickness. It doesn't say if you're sick, then there's sin involved. But there is this biblical connection about harboring sin and your silence will keep you sick, will make you physically ill. And even if you look at, you know, James 5, it will start to talk about the elders would come to the home of a person who's sick and they would want to know. Is there any sin we need to deal with here? Because of that connection. David, the giant slayer, like, are you even stronger than a fifth grader? His life physically, medically, and his health was deteriorating. He says, my soul was wilting. My joy was gone. My dreams were history. My peace was replaced with restlessness and groaning in my soul all day. My relationships were strained and tense. But if you read David's story, his relationship with, with his family just came apart because of his insistence on hiding and covering over his sin. I was sinking deeper and deeper into a dark hole. I covered my sin and it was killing me. And I wonder if David wouldn't say the same thing to us. Unconfessed sin will make you sick every time in one way or another. It will always bring deterioration. You will rapidly start to become a lesser version of the person that you were created to be. And the reality is for many of us, that's where we are today. Fractions of everything that God called and created us to be. Our relationships become, you know, superficial and and they become tense. That's some of us. We have beef with somebody all the time. Your friends would say, yeah, she's always beefing with somebody. There's always an issue with somebody all the time. And she's convinced something is wrong with everyone else, but she's the common denominator. Relationships are are strained. And for some of us, there's restlessness. We move from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. But what we cannot do is be okay with the now thing. Restless all the time. In our soul. Some of us may be experiencing literal health disintegration. Because we're holding on to the toxins of our sin. Which is what it is. I'm just going to hold on to these toxins. And they start to make us sick. Some of us are there. And David will tell us, if you choose to stay there, trust me, your sin kept secret will kill you. It will destroy you. If, if your pride insists on putting on a front so people have a certain perception of you, which is 
my problem. If your privacy insists on keeping people out, because my business is my business and your business is your business. If your pleasure insists on saying, if I confess this, if I deal with this thing, then I have to stop doing it. I have to get rid of it. I don't want to get rid of it. You will gradually disintegrate. And that may be where some of us are in our patterns. It will eventually kill us. James 1 says, when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Thankfully, that's not how this psalm ends. Thankfully, that's not how David's story ends. And thankfully, our stories don't have to end in a place of sickness and disintegration and deterioration. David offers a second door, a better option. And he can offer it because he took it himself. Um, about a year into his silent decay, God who is so awesome, church, always does it. He sends David a lifeline, always does. In your deepest despair, in your darkest season of deterioration, God will always send you a lifeline. And for some of us, that's what church is for you this morning. It is God and his grace sending you a lifeline to pull you back into places of life, to pull you back into places of joy, to bring your dreams to life again, to even restore your physical health, to bring health to some of your relationships. God offers David a lifeline. He sends a guy named Nathan to come and address David's sin, to confront David's sin, which is a risky proposition. When you come to a king and say, I know what you did. Who else knows? Just me and God? But no, in this particular moment, David is so tired of the weight he's carrying and the aging of his soul that he finally acknowledges his sin. And David would say, finally, I had chosen to sin and I had covered up my sin, but finally I confessed my sin. Look at verse 5. He says, then I acknowledged my sin that I denied for so long to you and did not cover up my iniquity anymore. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. David says, I confessed my sin. And this is what I believe the Lord wants to call some of us to. Maybe not just in this moment, but as a pattern of our lives. The question isn't whether or not we are going to mess up. The question isn't whether or not we are going to sin. The question is whether we'll choose to cover it up and disintegrate to death or whether we'll choose to confess it and live and enjoy delight. And after a year, David says, I'm done. I'm done. I'm tired. And he did what he would beg the rest of us to do immediately. He confessed his sin. Um, the word confess uh, literally means to say the same thing. Um, we would say in our contemporary language, to confess is to agree with something that someone else says. To agree with what a person says. So when God, the holy judge, when God, the holy standard maker, pulls you as a defendant into his courtroom and he says, you deviated from my standard. You violated my law by doing this thing. And he asks the question, how do you plead? Confession is pleading guilty every time. It's agreeing with God's statement, agreeing with God's standard and saying, you are right, I am wrong. I did the exact thing that you said. You're right. It's to agree with God. That's what confession means. David says, I started living again when I agreed with God that adultery and murder was sin. I agreed with God. And God has been asking some of us for a while. Will you finally agree with me that I am right, that my standard is right, and that what you have done is sin? Would you agree with me? 
cover up and the silence is our attempt to say, well, I agree, but I'm not going to say I agree. Uh, Now, I don't agree because technically God, I mean, it wasn't sex. No, no, but technically, and we'll cover up in many ways. And God, I think, has been saying to many of us, even for a while now, would you just agree with me? Would you agree with me that this habit of bad-mouthing your boss is sin? Would you agree with me? I mean, your co-workers might laugh at it, but the reality is it's keeping you sick. Would you confess that? Would you agree with me? Would you agree with me that holding on to this bitterness against this person is sin? It doesn't matter what they did to you. I will deal with that, I promise. I will carry your wounds, I promise. But would you agree that the bitterness you're holding is sin? No matter how many ways you explain to everybody, and no matter how many people around you say, ooh, girl, ooh, dude, yeah. Because we do that to each other. We help keep each other sick. While God is saying, no, the bitterness is killing you. Would you please agree with me? Would you agree with me that fostering those lustful thoughts about that person is sin? It's a big deal, let alone exposing yourself to images and, you know, that help amplify those thoughts. Can we agree that I'm right and you are wrong? Can we agree, please agree, that getting even a little drunk is sin? Stop calling it tipsy. It's keeping you sick. Can we agree that being obsessed with people's opinions is actually sin? Because you have put them above me. Can we agree? Because that's keeping you a fraction of everything you were designed and created to be. Can we agree that not sharing the gospel with your co-workers when you have the opportunity is sin? Agree with me. Confession means I agree with God's standard and I acknowledge that I've deviated from it. Some of us are sick and disintegrating and we keep going back to that place of sickness and disintegration because we don't even think that our sin is a big deal. So we haven't agreed with God and acknowledged that we broke his standard. And that's one of the dangers of making sin subjective. Because it means I can exasperate my kids and not feel bad, but if I binge on porn, then I feel bad. And then I assume, well, God is obviously mad about this, but he doesn't care about that. Now we start to measure sin by what makes me feel bad. Versus a standard. And so for many of us, I wonder if we're sick because we've dismissed some of our behavior as normal and ordinary. While God is saying, you are deviating from what I've said. You are poking me, the standard maker, in the chest. Can we please agree? Can we please agree? By the way, acknowledging sin, confessing sin means being specific in your agreement. Um, Confession is not typically, there are times when confession can be generic, but in this context, it's specific. It's specific, you know, because again, there are times when I may roll through a stop sign, I may speed, you know, I may not put on my seatbelt, you know, right away. I'm just a chronic traffic law violator. And so there are times when it's like, I can't even remember how many traffic laws I violated in the last 14 days, but I'm sure I've violated some. So I just want to say I'm sorry for my traffic violations. There are times for that. There are times when it's like, I know I'm a sinner God and I've messed up even in ways I'm not conscious of and I want to acknowledge that. But what David is talking about is something so much more specific. It is when God comes in his grace and it's very, very direct about something we've done or something we're doing, and he wants us to name that sin to him. Because you know, the judge never says to you, um, you are being charged with shenanigans and general tomfoolery. Like, no, he's more specific about what you did. And in the same sense, confession means I am naming the thing I have done that God says is a violation of. The standard. Some of us have been so vague with God. You know, I've done some stuff. Sorry. 
Sounds like my kids. Sorry. For what? Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> um, there's power in specificity. That's why David says, I acknowledged it. I named it. I called it what it was. And another element to confession is owning it. David owns it. He's done with blaming other people. He's not shifting the responsibility. He's not making excuses. He's leaving accomplices out of it. He's not talking about, well, she made me. Nope. He's owning his sin. It's amazing how many times he says, my sin, my guilt, my transgressions. It's mine. It's nobody else's. There's power in that. Naming it and owning it. But David would say to us, I confess my sin and I would beg you to do the same. Do not stay sick. But if you don't confess your sin, there is no healing. Without confession, there is no life. In verse 5, David says, there's a better option. When I finally confessed, God immediately forgave. God was like, I've been waiting a year for this moment. I've been holding, you've been holding on to your sin. I've been holding on to this forgiveness with your name on it, boy. It's about time. Immediately I confessed God forgave. I love that. That's the story for some of us here this morning. And he says, God covered me. This is a powerful picture of forgiveness. Verse 5, then I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin, he says. This is so awesome and you won't believe it. But David uses three different words to describe forgiveness. The first word is a word to cover. It's translated, it means to cover. Uh, it means to hide or to conceal something, often used of putting on clothing. It's to cover. The second word he uses is the word to close. It's a word that means to close. And it's the idea of dismissing or disregarding something. It's legally the idea of throwing out a case and burning the fire. And then he uses a third word that means to carry. It's a picture of lifting a boulder off of something. To carry uh, metaphorically, it's the idea of lifting and taking someone's else, someone else's responsibility as your own. Woo! David is preaching now. Because God offers you a deal that is absolutely mind-boggling. I don't know if you knew this, but there are three words he uses to describe sin. And there are three words he uses to describe forgiveness. And then what he's saying in this offer is when you uncover your defiance against God, God covers your defiance with his grace. When you uncover your sin, I cover you. That's the first picture he paints. When you unveil your shame, I clothe you with my righteousness. When you stop covering for your sin, I can finally cover it with my perfect covering of grace. And when you acknowledge that you broke my standard, I immediately, the second word means to close. I close the case. I dismiss all charges and I burn the file. What's sin? There's no record of that sin here. Case has been closed. And the third term he uses is, is this idea of when you own the guilty sentence that you deserve. I lift the boulder from your soul and I carry it for you. Remember that guilt that was on you? When you own it, I lift it. And that's what the cross is. It's Jesus Christ Carrying the boulder of our sin so we don't have to carry it anymore. Would you just agree? Would you just confess? Would you please let dreams live again? I want them to. Would you please enjoy the freedom and the joy that comes with knowing your case has been dismissed. Your shame has been covered. And I've carried the weight that you deserve 
Um, I'm going to ask John to come out. We, we are going to just take a few moments to share and enjoy communion together. Um, but we do. We just want to take a couple of moments where you are to, to process with the Lord. There is this offer of forgiveness immediately. But what God is asking is for you to agree with him that what you have done, the specific thing you've done, is sin. So that he can lift it, so that he can cover it, and so he can dismiss your case. And I want to give you a moment, regardless of where you are with the Lord. Maybe you've never done this. This is the moment, this is the morning to say, God, I confess, you're right, I'm wrong, and I want to be free of my sin. I just want to give you a moment to talk to God where you are. And then I'll lead us in a a few moments of communion. So let's spend some time talking to him regardless of where you are. Lord, I pray that even as your people, maybe for the first time in a long time, are willing to acknowledge and stop covering and stop defending and stop justifying. Lord, we just praise you that even as we acknowledge that, you are raining forgiveness down in this place. Every sin we commit carries a death sentence. And yet, Lord, you are willing to defect that sentence and to deflect it to the person of Jesus Christ. And we praise you for that. We praise you for your free and immediate and complete forgiveness of sin when we confess it. So let your joy and your freedom reign in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.